0: Lesson number eight of What is the Heart? This is the Conscience. This is one lesson. I may come back in the future and write five or six more lessons on and make it its own little pod school uh, curriculum, but for now we get one lesson on it. So pay attention and listen quick, and we'll see what we can do to help us. Let's briefly review everything we have covered thus far. We're eight lessons into this. Module, so we need to probably stop and go back and review. So, number one, our hearts are desperately wicked, incurably sick, always in need of maintenance and discipleship. We cannot forget that. Our society has taught us to trust our heart. Our society has taught us that we can trust our heart, that you got to go with what's in your heart and follow your heart. And, and that's horrible advice, horrible, <laughs> absolutely wretched advice. Number one, because it violates the scripture. Number two, if you would admit to it, anytime you followed your heart, you always repented later because it was a mess. The Bible is so kind and so sweet to say your heart is desperately wicked and curably sick. What that means is it's always going to need work. It's always going to need some kind of attention. Number two, we cannot trust our hearts. That's another thing we've said. That's a proverb. He that trusts his heart is a fool. So get rid of all those country music songs. Get rid of all those pop culture songs. Get rid of all those rom-coms. There actually is a jazz bossa nova song by, um, his name will come to me in a minute. The lyric, it's in Portuguese, but I have the subtitles. It says, never trust your heart when you're in love. And I thought that might be the wisest statement I've ever heard out of a love song. Never trust your heart. Stan Getz, Brazilian uh, saxophonist. 1950s, 1960s. Never trust your heart when you're in love. Yep. That sounds pretty accurate because you're a fool when you're in love. That's why when you're in love, you got to tether yourself to a lot of people you trust and uh, a lot of elders, a lot of uh, church discipline, because when you're in love, you can be fool till ignorant because love is blind. Just look at how many parents pervert judgment for their kids because they're in love. That's my boy. No, no, no. That's a 25-year-old criminal. That's my girl. No, that's a 32-year-old druggie. The judge doesn't care. Amen. Our heart is what we think and keep thinking. Therefore, we can change our hearts by changing what we think. Our heart is what we want and keep wanting. Therefore, we can change our hearts by changing what we want. Our heart is what we emote and keep emoting. Therefore, we can change our hearts by changing how we emote. And all of this is done through the dominion we've been given as Christians to speak to these mountains. Mountains aren't always sickness. They're not always demons. They're not always problems. Sometimes the mountain is just a way of thinking. Sometimes the mountain is a desire. You tell it to shut up and be content. Sometimes the the mountain is an emotional uh, trigger. You get offended so easily. Tell the thing to shut up and get with the program. Our heart has a voice, and that voice is the expression of our thoughts, our wants, and our emotions. We covered the voice of the heart last week. We have to learn to recognize that voice. If you'll get quiet, if you'll ask the Lord to turn up your sensitivity, you will hear your heart say something about everything you ever look at or ever hear. Just sit at a traffic light and just listen as stuff goes back, back and forth in front of you. Just drive down the road and see what your heart says about the pedestrian walking. Billboards. Your heart is constantly talking. And if you can listen to it, it will really show you what the real you sounds like. Not the spirit man. I know in one regard that's the real us. It's seated in heavenly places. But seated in heavenly places, that guy is not thinking about that girl going for her jog. Or that guy in his muscle car. Or what's on the billboard. That's, that's, that's not the, the spirit man thinking those thoughts. That's the real you that still needs to be trained and disciplined. Amen. Uh, The heart's voice has something to say about everything. No opinion is still an opinion. Well, I have no opinion about that. That's still indicative of something. What do you think about uh, Senator Manchin? I have no idea who that even is. Well, that still tells us something. Tells us maybe you don't follow politics. Tells us you don't understand what's going on in our nation. Tells us maybe you don't follow the news. No opinion is still an opinion. So even when your heart looks at something and goes, it's still information, even confusion, Or the, quote, what am I looking at? Or I don't understand reveals something about the heart's contents. The heart's voice is also called the conscience. That's what we're focusing on today. Faith and by default our conscience is adjusted, developed, and grown by hearing and hearing and hearing. We could even add our faith and our conscience can be destroyed by what you hear and what you hear and what you hear. We're watching the great falling away happen all around us. Because people are listening to corruption and they're slowly changing what they believe. How? By changing what they think. Because faith is of the heart and your heart is what you think and keep thinking. As a pastor, and I know it from the book of Jeremiah, I could steer all of you into apostasy. Hopefully you guys would begin to jump ship. If I was demonic, like many pastors are, I could do it so subtly you would never recognize where we're going. Hopefully you'd be led enough by the Holy Ghost to begin to jump ship. The second you see the ship begin to turn too far one direction. But we have mega churches today steering straight into apostasy, and the congregations are full of ignoramuses who can't even tell that their shepherd is no shepherd and their doctrine is no doctrine, and little by little their heart is changing. You have some of the biggest churches in the land that are now pro-gay and gay marriage affirming, and they weren't that 10 years ago. Faith and, by default, our conscience. And the thing we'll look at next lesson is going to be faith. Because faith and the conscience are almost simultaneously the same thing. Because when your heart says, the conscience says, if I may but touch the hem of my garment, hem of his garment, that's your conscience. Faith and, by default, our conscience, it is adjusted, developed, and grown by hearing and hearing and hearing. That's why you must be careful what you're listening to. So what is the conscience? We can begin to ascertain what the heart is. By discovering what it is not, or we should say the conscience, it is not the voice of the born-again human spirit. Let's say that very clearly. Your conscience is not the voice of your born-again human spirit. If that were the case, then nobody before the new birth could have a conscience. All right? If your conscience is the voice of the born-again human spirit, we made these arguments in Lesson 1, but if your conscience is the voice of your born-again human spirit, how can we all have a different conscience in here? If we're all born again, should we not all feel the same thing about the same thing? Should we not all be offended at the same thing and find humor in the same thing and rejoice at the same thing? Because we all have the same Holy Spirit. But we all have a different conscience on everything in here. We're all offended at different stuff. That's a work of the conscience. We all find humor in different stuff. That's a work of the conscience. We all get angry at certain things. That's a work of the conscience. So hear me, and we can debate it all day long, but you'll be wrong. The conscience is not the voice of your born-again human spirit because people in the Old Testament had a conscience and they were not born-again in their human spirit. Can the born-again spirit convict you? Sure. But not every day it doesn't. If it did every day, you would be perfect and you wouldn't sin. All right, if we want to say the conscience is our born-again human spirit, then the Bible says we can sear... Our born-again human spirit, that thing that's seated in heavenly places, doesn't make any sense. 1 Samuel 24, 5, and it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. David's heart smote him. Old King James, old Hebraic way of saying his conscience convicted him. His heart smote him. This is a double evidence that your conscience is the voice of your heart. David, though not born again in the spirit, had a heart that smote him for shaming the wicked king Saul. Though he initially found the idea pleasing, and his men talked him into it, some degree of time and meditation on the events caused his heart to smite him. He had dishonored his king and surrogate father, and this smiting was the work of his conscience. So there's evidence your conscience is not the work or the voice of your human spirit. David was not born again. It was impossible for him to be born again. And yet his heart smote him for an action that his other men, their conscience didn't smite them. They thought it was a great idea. They thought it was God. They said, King, look, God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now creep up there and kill him. They were excited about this. They felt good about it. Their heart did not smite them. Their conscience did not smite them. But David, he felt good about it for a moment. He did it. And then after he did it, he said, I shouldn't have done it. I think we've all been there, felt good about it. Then afterwards, we said, I should not have done that. You walk away and your conscience beats you up. And you got to make a phone call or make a text. Or The more you think about it, the more you just feel sick at your stomach. It would be nice if it was the voice of your human spirit to have told you 10 minutes before you did it. But it's not the voice of your born-again human spirit. Because David had a conscience and no born-again experience. John 8, 9. This, by the way, is the middle of John, way before the new birth is available to anybody. And they, the accusers of the adulterous woman, which heard it, being convicted by their own born-again spirits. No. Being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Here's another example. These are Pharisees. These are Sadducees. These are scribes. These are the religious class. Jesus famously says, he that's without the sins cast the first stone. And it convicts them in their conscience. And their conscience says, we have no dog in this fight. I like what Pastor Ingolf said when he was with us one of the times. He said he believed that what Jesus was writing in the sand was a list of all their sins that he probably obviously knew by the word of wisdom or word of knowledge. So he's just writing down what they're guilty of, and they can see he knows what they do in private too. And that's why when he makes that statement, this is, of course, all speculation, and I like it. When he says, those of you without sin cast the first stone, and there's a list of all their sin, they got real convicted real quick. A work of their conscience, though, not their born-again human spirit, because it could not; they couldn't be born again yet. The Lord's famous quote, He that is without sin among you, let him cast a stone at her. Let him first cast a stone at her, convicted the unregenerate scribes and Pharisees. Their own conscience convicted them, not the Holy Spirit, not their human spirit. This is proof that lost people have a conscience. And if the lost have a conscience, then the conscience is not the voice of the born-again human spirit. We all know pagans that have a good conscience. They're they're conscientious about their work. They're conscientious about their marriage. They're conscientious about paying taxes. They're conscientious about their kids doing what's right. But they're not born again. Because remember, our whole premise is that your heart is what you think and keep thinking, want and keep wanting, and and emote and keep emoting. And the work of the conscience is to convict you or to acquit you. And that is totally programmable. This helps us explain why everybody in here this morning has a different conscience. We're, We're all convicted of something a little differently. We all raise our kids a little bit differently based on our convictions. Convictions are programmable. And convictions are voiced when the conscience says, uh-uh-uh, we don't do that. Uh-uh-uh, we don't do that. Acts 23, 1. And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, what that is the Greek word Sanhedrin, said, men and brethren, I have lived in a good conscience before God until this day. In all good conscience before God until this day. Now this is a little bit tricky. So hear, the, hear what's going on. Paul is being brought before the Sanhedrin. This is Pharisees and Sadducees. And that is typically the 71 that makes up the Sanhedrin. It's typically 50-50 Pharisees, which is one sect of uh, rabbinical leaders, and Sadducees, which is another sect of rabbinical leaders. They have different doctrine, but they are the ruling. This is like the Supreme Court for Israel. He knows some of them are Pharisees because he recognizes the Sanhedrin. That's why he calls them men. And brethren, So some he identifies with, others he doesn't. He instantly invokes his whole walk with God. I have lived in good conscience before God until this day. So my entire life, because we're all Jews here, I have lived in a good conscience before our God until this day. Because he's trying to set himself up for a debate. He's about to debate with the Pharisees that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. That's what he did everywhere he went. But he's able to say, my conscience has been clear my whole life. That includes before he was born again. That includes when he was killing Christians because he thought he was doing God a favor in obeying the law because a heretic must be put to death. He had total permission under Mosaic law to stone a heretic, which is why he felt good about it, and he was not convicted of it. So Paul's appeal... To his fellow Pharisees and Jews was an invocation of his entire life from his bar mitzvah to time as a Pharisee to the persecution of the saints. He was endeavoring to prove his pedigree to them. This included his pre-conversion life. He testified that his conscience had been clear his entire life, including before he was born again. This adds to the evidence that the conscience is not the voice of our spirit man or the Holy Spirit. He felt no remorse for holding the robes of those that stoned Stephen, the first martyr. He felt like this is the work of God. This is the work of God. Thankfully, the Bible provides great insight into what the conscience is. Paul provides the most succinct explanation of the mechanics of the conscience. So this is the verse that is the the Rosetta Stone. This is the master key. This unlocks everything. Romans 2.15, Paul said, The Gentiles show the work of the law written in their hearts, not even born again yet, because lost people have hearts too, and you can write things upon the table of their hearts. Abraham was not born again, but he was the father of our faith because he had a heart. That's the other thing that messes with faith, people. Faith is not uh, of the spirit. Faith is of the heart. Faith is a spirit. It's an attitude. But faith as a force is of the heart if faith was of the born again human spirit we would all have equal faith in here because we're all equal in Christ we're all seated in heavenly places all born again of the same spirit made a drink of the same spirit in Christ but we don't all have the same faith in here we're not all equally faithful we don't all have the same faith for finances faith for marriage faith for money faith for salvation faith to win the lost we don't all, we're not equal in our faith but if it was of our spirit man and we're all equal in Christ it should be equal but it's not it's of our heart and we all have different places in our heart, different strengths, different weaknesses, different hungers, different emotions, different wants. And, and the heart is the total stewardship. And so our life is a result of how well we have or haven't stewarded our heart. So Paul said, The Gentiles show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. The Gentiles, not the Christians, the Gentiles have a conscience that bears witness and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. So, New Living Translation. Puts it a little more succinct in English, modern English. They, the Gentiles, demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts. Either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. This is the work of what the conscience does, generally speaking. It says, don't do that. That's wrong. Or keep on doing it. We're right. You and I have, we we, as Christians, we've often wrestled with the pressure of accusations or opposition and we'll go to somebody and say, please tell me that what I'm doing is right. We need, our conscience needs that reassurance. Pastor, please tell me I'm right for taking this stand on the job. Pastor, please tell me that I'm right in my marriage. Pastor or elder or brother in Christ, sister in Christ, please tell me that I'm doing what's right by disciplining my child. Because your conscience wavers. It's, your, your conscience is wanting to tell you what you're doing is right, but you're hearing voices that are trying to change your conscience. The whole of the American church is under this pressure that says, how could you do that? That's not Christian love. You call yourself a Christian, that's a demon trying to change your conscience. If you really love them, what? I would pray for them. That's the least I owe anybody, is prayer. The Bible doesn't tell me to fellowship with everybody. If you really loved us, you let us come to your house. That's not how this works. That's them trying to manipulate your conscience so you feel guilty. Hasn't mama always been a really good guilt tripper? She should have her travel agent's license. She knows how to override your conscience to make you feel guilty for something you didn't feel guilty before yesterday. That's how much our heart and our conscience is up for grabs. You can be guilted just like that by someone who is a master manipulator. And if you can never recognize it, you can take a stand and thump them as they ought to be thumped. Say, I'm sorry. Uh, is this Dove Travel Agency? I didn't I thought we were just talking. Now I feel like you're putting me on a guilt trip. And I don't I don't take guilt trips. So why don't you repent and when you're done feeling sorry for yourself, call me back and we'll have better fellowship. And hang up on them. You would do that? Yeah, my conscience would be clear. Yours may not be, but we don't have the same conscience. Because we don't have the same heart, because neither is the voice of the Holy Spirit. I would never treat somebody that way. I know you wouldn't. And we're both born again, so where's the difference lie? In training. So you have to be able to recognize when people are beginning to manipulate you and pull you and twist you and use you. Galatians says they would zealously affect you, but not for your benefit. There are several things revealed in this verse, and we could probably mine it out for some more. I've studied these passages for a long time. Number one, something, in this case the law, is always being written on our hearts. Social media has proven modern man can be discipled in less than a year. Social media has proven you can take Christians and get them to deny Christ all in exchange for social media hearts and thumbs up and embrace gay marriage so that grandma will love them. Social media has expedited the great falling away. And it's why I'm 125% against social media. I don't think any Christian should be on there. I've said that for years. Not everybody agrees. But then again, we don't have mental health issues in my home. Nor will we ever. Something is always being written on the table of your heart. I feel so bad for the churches that have one service a week and they have the one-hour guarantee. What in God's name can you do with a human being today with 30 minutes of preaching once a week? Nothing. Because if you're that cowardly a preacher that you only give them one hour a week, I guarantee you that 30-minute little sermon has no word in it. And you and I are fools if you think we can get by with one Bible study a week, a one little 30-minute prayer session a week. Our hearts are up for grabs and something is always being written on that table. Number two, whatever is written on our hearts will produce a work in our life. That is why Proverbs says, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Your life is a result of what's written on your heart. Your life is a result of what's written on your heart. And if you don't like your life, change what's on your heart. Just start writing. Just start scribbling. (laughs) And as you scribble, your handwriting will eventually get better and legible, and your life will improve. But your life stays the same because you actually have added nothing to the contents of your heart. And those, like as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Uh, The article I saw this morning is that TikTok has now, hashtag trans videos have been viewed six billion times on TikTok. And they're producing the mental contagion of transgenderism among young girls. So these young girls are letting TikTok trans influencers pour into their soul and change the table of their heart. And before long, these little girls think they're boys and they begin to look like it. That is how powerful this teaching is and how real these laws of the spirit realm are. You can change who you are. You can change how you look by what you write on your heart. And just because you once knew it 10 years ago doesn't mean it's still written on the table of your heart. And there's a huge difference in knowledge in your head and table of your heart. Like I've demonstrated to you, we all know in our head what homosexuals do in their bedroom, but it's not on the table of our heart. We all know what evolution says. We all know how politicians are. It doesn't change our life because it's not on our heart. And I would also tell you again as your pastor, you know all the doctrine we teach around here, but your life doesn't change because you don't ever do anything with it in your heart. So you stay the same, sassy, opinionated, overweight, poor, broke, dysfunctional marriage, fat kids because you don't do anything with what we teach. You just log it up here and take notes with it. But if you would actually put it on the tables of your heart, you could see your life transformed. It won't be for lack of preaching that your life falls apart. It'll be for lack of doing. Number three, the conscience has a voice that convicts or acquits every action based on these internal writings. Your heart will either acquit you or convict you based on what you wrote there. And if you have nothing, if you're not offended, if you don't know what happened, you'll have nothing to say or respond to it. This also demonstrates that all of our offenses are taught. You're only offended by what you've been taught to be offended by. Just use racial slurs to children. They won't be offended because they don't know what those words are. Then they, once, once they hear the word, they have to equate it or be taught that that word equals you being trashed in the eyes of this person. They still don't get it. you got to keep washing them and keep washing them and keep washing them till they understand why that's hateful and why they should be offended at it. Even watching my kids grow up and watching them begin to learn dirty words now because of our culture, even Lydia, she said, I know two dirty words, Daddy. We were driving back from gymnastics. I said, okay, what are they? She said, the geo." and gosh, because we don't say, oh, my gosh, in my house, because it sounds you know, like, oh, my G-O-D. The G word, she said, which is weird because we worship God. So she's putting it together that our culture makes no sense whatsoever. She said, and then the S word. So I'm like, all right, what's the S word? I said, what's the S word, sweetie? Because I'm thinking, I know, I know the four letter S word. Does she know the four letter S word? She said, can I say it? I said, yeah. So she said it very sweet and innocent in the high accent, you know, the, this? <laughs> and I laughed so hard because she, was, she didn't even have confidence behind it because she wasn't even sure if she was saying it right. I said, yeah, that's a dirty word. She still has no faith attached to that SH word because she just learned it. She doesn't even, what's it supposed to mean? I said, well, it's a fancy word for poo. Really? Yeah. This is me teaching her what the word means, writing it upon the table of her heart. I said, where'd you learn that? From one of your kids. From one of your kids. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Why must I spank my sheep's kid out of my kid? I didn't have to spank her. We're learning. So, yes, for all my pastoring... Yay, my 10-year-old learned S-H-I-T from one of your kids. In here. One of you in here right now. I love pastoring. It's job security. All right. Our conscience is based on what is written internally because we all have different things written on our heart. We won't ever all have the same convictions. If If our conscience was the voice of our born-again human spirit, we would all have the same convictions. We'd all be on time for church. We'd all pay our tithe. We'd all show up for door-to-door evangelism because we'd all be convicted of the same things that are equally important to God. But it's evident that's not so. We'd all reject fear the same. We'd all reject poverty the same. We'd all reject laziness the same because we'd be convicted of it if it was the voice of the eternal God. But it's not the voice of the eternal God. It's the voice of what we've trained. Therefore, we must commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Every man has a different conscience. We must be careful to always commend ourselves to everybody we meet and be careful to, to see what would or wouldn't offend them. And that's exhausting sometimes, but that's what we do, that we might win the lost. Now, there's some people we're just not going to ever tolerate because their, their conscience is so seared you can't please them. But generally speaking, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Number six, conviction and condemnation can be a work of the conscience. Both of them can be a work of the conscience. Conviction can be either from our conscience or the Holy Spirit. We know that our conscience convicts us. That's the number one job of our conscience, according to Romans. And John 16:8 says, the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin. So conviction, which is good, can be a work of our conscience or the Holy Spirit to convict us. I'm trying to think of this one time the Holy Spirit convicted me and I was just an ignoramus and uh, I was reading through Proverbs and he convicted me. Lots of times reading the Bible will convict you of sin that your conscience is just too ignorant because it's not been written on your heart yet. So the Holy Spirit has to say that, that right there. Same with Preaching. The Word goes forth. The Holy Spirit says, you. As if to say, that whole sheet on your heart is blank. This is where I would like you to write that so you don't do it again. That's why we come and submit ourselves to the preaching and teaching of God's Word, because the Word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Condemnation is bad and always bad. Conviction is good and always good. Condemnation is bad and always bad, and it can either be from our conscience 1 John 3, 20, if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart. If our heart, if our conscience condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Or it can be from the devil or a demon spirit. And he says, let's uh, be lifted up and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So condemnation can also be a work of the conscience or it can be a work of the demon realm. Either way, we reject it. We say, shut up, heart. I've, I've repented of that 35 times today. And I've repented and that's my job and God doesn't hold it against me, so shut up. And even there, you're training your heart to cast down those emotions, to cast down those thoughts and to rise up and act in faith. Conversely, courage and boldness can be a work of the conscience. Oh, the testimony of our faith, great joy. The testimony of our conscience is rejoicing. It's a courage. Um, Courage and boldness is a work of the conscience. It says, we're able, let's go do this. Conscience says, when you look at a stranger and the Holy Spirit says, go witness to them, your conscience can either say, yes, sir, or your conscience will say, I'm too scared. It's all the work of the conscience. We're well able. Let's do this. We're good at this. Stimuli activates the conscience. As the voice of the heart, the conscience doesn't speak unless it has something to answer. <laughs> I wish some Americans would were that way. Just don't talk until somebody asks you first. Even a lack of stimuli is known as boredom, and our hearts will say something about that. I am so bored. Information or knowledge may be the greatest conscience activators, but our conscience will only respond based on how it's been programmed. So Romans 13, 5 says, Therefore you must be need subject to the higher powers not for wrath, but for conscience, also for conscience sake. So we can only reply to stimuli based on what's been trained. Here, Romans says, we submit to the higher powers, not only to avoid wrath, but also because our conscience knows we should. So it's a twofold blessing. If you'll submit to anybody over you in your life, not only will you be blessed and avoid pain, but you'll feel good. You'll know you did what was right. We submit to parents, police, teachers, and rulers, not just to avoid getting into trouble, but also because our conscience has been taught to respect them and comply we turn on submission when we recognize the office, blue lights flashing, or the professor entering the classroom. You will turn on submission when you recognize who's present. Uh, I think we've all been on the interstate, and some white Ford Explorer pulls up behind us very quickly, and we assume it's a state trooper because that's what they look like. And you think, oh, Lord, your heart drops. You move over, at least I do, and then blows past you, and it's granny. And she just happens to drive a, a white Ford Explorer. It, you, submission all of a sudden caught up with you because you recognize what authority looks like. And then you realize, oh, well, I don't have to submit to that it's granny. Or flashing lights, but they're not blue or red. I'm not pulling over. That's the mailman or that's a construction truck. But I ain't pulling over for white strobes or yellow lights. You're no know, cop or firefighter who's in a hurry to go save somebody. So you know how to do this. When kids walk in your classroom at Tech or at university, you don't get quiet for them. They're your equal. But when you're a learned professor, when you recognize that doctor has walked in and you have to get to know what they look like, everything stops. Even in a courtroom, everybody's mumbling, mumbling, mumbling until the bailiff says, I'll rise, and then everything stops. I'll rise, and everybody stands up, and they start showing honor, uh, the kind of honor they don't know how to even show God anymore. So our conscience is activated by what we see or hear, but it can only reply based on what we've been taught. Even meeting famous people, it means nothing to you if you don't know who they are. I've been on airplanes with Titans players, and the one guy I had no idea who he was but everybody was wanting a picture or an autograph. And he was a big old boy, beautiful family with him. They were sitting in first class. I said, all right, he's got to be a ball player because he's big. And so I had to ask this guy, who is this? So-and-so, he plays for the Titans. I don't know who he is. So I didn't even bother to do anything but say, hi, you have a beautiful baby. I didn't want a picture with him. He didn't, his, heart, his, his person meant nothing to my heart because I quit following the Titans a long time ago. But when I was at the airport and I sat next to Eddie George my heart went, that is Eddie George. And you tell that story, and people who don't know who Eddie George is, like, well, who's that? Because your conscience hasn't been taught. Therefore, you have no value. You have no activation. You're like, uh, oh, it's a big black guy. But that's Eddie George. When you know who it is, your conscience activates, and all of a sudden, honor comes out. Acts 23, 2 through 5. And the high priest... Ananias commanded them that stood by Paul to smite him on the mouth. Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou white wall, for sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten in contrary to the law. And they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? Then said Paul, I knew not, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. So listen to the story. Paul's on trial. Ananias, he has no idea who Ananias is. He has no idea this is the high priest. He's just on the Sanhedrin. And Paul's talking. He says, I've lived in all good conscience to this day, brethren. And Ananias says, somebody slapped that man on the face. And Paul looks at this guy and says, you little wretched weasel. You're sitting on the Sanhedrin and you command me to be smitten in contrary of the law you represent? You're a hypocrite. Then somebody else says, how dare you speak against the high priest? Then Paul instantly repents. What a a conscientious yo-yo. He is so bold, he has no problem cursing someone on the Sanhedrin because at that point he thinks they're equal because they're both Pharisees. But when he finds out he's a high priest, he repents before all instantly. He can turn it on like that based on the law of Moses written on his heart. It shows you how quickly you can change your attitude if you fear God. It's just like that. And he had no no, uh, reputation to defend. He knew the high priest instantly trumped him. And he had been so long indoctrinated in the law of Moses, he still has reverence for the high priest who's going to hell. But that's the high priest. You don't turn off honor for the high priest just because you get saved. This is the leader and the spiritual expert of his religion, though he's now born again and an apostle. Paul had no problem rebuking a mere Pharisee, Sadducee, or scribe. All were members of the Sanhedrin he was standing before. But the second he learned that it was the high priest he was rebuking, his conscience, trained by the law, was quickly convicted and restrained him. His new knowledge activated his conscience. Just one little bit of information can totally change how you're behaving. Just one little bit of information. Somebody walks in. We'd like to honor uh, Brother So-and-So. That's an old man. Uh, He's the last surviving member of D-Day. We would all stand up and begin to weep if we knew what D-Day was and to know he's the last surviving member of that battalion that took Normandy Beach. We we would instantly be honored. Honor would swell in our heart to know that here is a great war veteran, the last one remaining. But if you knew nothing about D-Day or nothing about World War II or nothing about Normandy, he's still just an old guy to you. Just like that, your conscience will activate and your faith will be changed. This is why gossip is so dangerous, because it can take your respect and plummet it with just one word. That's why you don't listen to gossip. It's why you don't take it with anything but a grain of salt. And it really is amazing. Something as stupid and as wicked as gossip can undo what took 20 years to build in your life. One little tidbit of gossip, you'll lose all respect for somebody you were... You had to learn for 20 years to look up to. So that's why we reject gossip. And we put gossips out of our church. 1 Corinthians 10, Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, that is the meat market, that eat, asking no question for your conscience sake. Just don't even ask. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast and you be disposed to go, whatsoever is set before you eat, asking no question for conscience sake. Twice he says, just don't even ask. It'll be easier to know that what you're eating is not macaroni, but it's, it's organ parts. <laughs> it's just nice to not know. I've told folks before, don't tell me what it is till I finish eating. Let me just enjoy it. And then afterwards, when I've wiped my mouth and I want no more seconds, then you can tell me that this is like goat head or goat brains or whatever it is you're feeding me. But if any man say unto you, this is offered and sacrificed to idols, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? So we see a lot of conscience mentioned here. This passage presents the mechanics between two opposed consciences at play, the Christian's conscience and the pagan's conscience. The Christian knows the idol is nothing and the meat is nothing. Therefore, he is free to eat it. But the pagan sees the meat as a pagan sacrifice and therefore sacred. For the believer to abstain from eating the meat would be a witness to the pagan's testimony. Had the pagan never spoken up, the Christian could have eaten it. If the pagan knows that it's a pagan meat and he tells you, he's going to watch to see if you will partake of his demon deity with him. Therefore... Your conscience is not the problem. His is. So you withhold just to sear, excuse me, just to provoke and convict his conscience. Just like when you don't go over to people's houses, you convict them. That's why some of the judgment of God is God telling us to not fellowship with people, that their conscience might begin to wonder, why won't they fellowship with me? Why won't they come over? Why won't they have me over? Why won't they answer any of my invitations? And you obeying God will begin to do a work in their conscience, and they'll realize not even the Christians will fellowship with me. Hopefully, they'll be born again. Different types of consciences. The New Testament reveals several different types uh, of consciences or conditions uh, our conscience can fall into. We must study them to diagnose our own conditions. So there's the good conscience. This is where we should all strive to live. The good conscience is acquired and maintained by sound doctrine and practice. We want to live in all good conscience. You can do something totally wrong, but be in good conscience in the moment. Get two or three years down the road and realize, boy, I was way wrong. Father, forgive me. And he never bothered to convict you because he saw your heart in it. But he said, yeah, I winked at it. Don't do it again. And we're all that way right now today. Jesus Christ said, I have many things to say unto you, which means you're wrong right now, but you cannot bear them. But when he, the Comforter, comes, he'll lead you, guide you all the truth, show you things that comes. There will come a time when the Lord will say, remember that time in 2021? Yeah. Yeah. Don't ever do that again. Will you let me then? Yeah, because you were at a different stage, but you'll never get away with it again. And your conscience will take a step up and you realize, I can't address it this way. I can't speak to it this way. I can't handle it that way. I have to improve. Our conscience will always grow, but it is possible to always live in a good conscience. Weak conscience, this is a result of a lack of training and knowledge. Romans 14 equates the weak conscience with one who is weak in the faith. There is a correspondence between faith and the conscience. When someone is of a weak conscience, they are weak in the faith, and therefore they eat only herbs. Paul said he knew and was persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there was nothing unclean of itself. So Paul's conscience was strong, but he had been taught nothing's unclean of itself. The weak conscience can be remedied with sound doctrine. So we're always learning. We're always learning. We're always learning. And when we teach people how to handle things differently, their conscience will take a step up and they'll say, well, I don't know why we ever did it that way. That looks so dumb from where I'm standing. But back here, when you were here doing it the dumb way, your heart thought, this is the best way ever. This is just how we do it. Until you were taught better. Then you come up and you look back and you think, yeah, why did we do that? But also know that where you're at today, 10 years from now, you'll look back and say, why did we ever do it that way? Because the conscience is always shifting, we want to live in a good conscience, pure conscience, also called a clear conscience. In the New Testament, we keep our conscience clear by listening to it and rectifying any situation wherein we violate it. So you keep a clear conscience by always rectifying the wrongs. If you feel smitten in your heart, go make amends. If you feel smitten in your heart, go make amends, and that will keep your heart tender. It'll keep it pure. And at least you'll be able to dwell in good conscience until the present day. Uh, the world wants us to soil our conscience. Maintain a pure con- uh, maintaining a pure conscience will result in a confident conscience. And we all need confidence. So when you're always quick to repent, quick to forgive, and quick to rectify, uh, you'll have this confidence knowing I'm doing everything I know to do. A confident conscience is hard to come by today. It is the testimony of a pure conscience when we know that we have conducted ourselves in the world with holiness and godly sincerity. No natural confidence can compare to uh, godly confidence. When you're dirty and you're living in sin, you're always worried and looking over your shoulder. You can't even lift your head up high, and you're always worried does God hear you because you don't keep a pure conscience? Defiled conscience here, the word defiled means dyed another color like a garment. What we focus on or who we fellowship with can dye our conscience different colors. Uh, This is why we want to run with clean, holy people. Whatever your weakness is, find somebody stronger than you and run with them so they can change your color. If you want to be pure, run with pure people. We must work to keep our conscience pure. A defiled conscience will eventually result in a seared conscience. And then that's, that's pretty horrible. A seared conscience is nearly irredeemable. Without a miracle, the seared conscience will stay numb and without feeling just like a brand. If you were to brand yourself with a hot poker or like cattle, there's never going to be any feeling there ever again. But you don't start off with a seared conscience. You start off by defiling it. You start off by playing with the impurities in your conscience, and it begins to change your whole conscience. We're watching whole churches slowly be dyed a different color, and then all of a sudden perversion creeps in. In the next service, I'm going to talk about a church I know of where a lot of the dirt of the church has come to light through the lesbian chief of security. What kind of modern, spirit-filled, trendy megachurch has a lesbian chief of security? And now that more dirt has come out, she can see her pastor is dirtier than her, and she's beginning to ask, I don't even know what to make of my church experience. She said this in an interview, I learned how to be a better wife to my wife at that church. Why didn't you learn how to be a better Christian at that church? Why didn't you learn that lesbianism is a sin at that church? You learn how to be a better wife to your wife at that church? That is a church whose conscience is slowly being dyed a different color. Then it's going to begin to be seared, and then it'll become apostate. Evil conscience. A conscience can be evil for many reasons. It can be evil because of shame and condemnation, which we must cast down and reject. Or it can be evil because it delights in wicked things which we also cast down and reject. Paul acknowledged the dynamic nature of his own conscience, Acts 24, 16. Herein do I exercise myself. That means you got to hustle, get after it, to always have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. It does matter what people think of you to a point. We don't repent for the gospel. We don't repent for the Bible. But anything else, we ought to be open to repent for. But Paul said, I had to exercise. I had to be diligent to always have a conscience void of offense. That's what we do. Even for a born-again, spirit-filled apostle, maintaining a pure conscience was an endeavor that required exercise. Peter observed the conscience can be aimed toward God. He said in 1 Peter 2, For this is thankworthy, this finds favor. If a man for the sake of conscience toward God endure grief. For the sake of our conscience toward God, we endure grief. It's more important for us to please God than it is please man. Take the hit. Be lambasted. Be persecuted because you have a conscience aimed towards pleasing God, not towards pleasing TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or any of those debauched hellholes called social media. Why are we worried about what they think on there? They're not even real. Nothing on social media is real. Everybody living there is a fraud. Every filter, every 16 pictures taken to produce one that then will be doubly filtered, we're chasing an enigma that doesn't exist, and it will slowly steal your conscience away from being worried about what God thinks. We must aim to keep our conscience aimed at pleasing God. Amen.